The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is proudly brought to you by Callahan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. Hello and welcome along to something a little bit different this month. It's the first of our monthly business chats with the Business is Boring team. Uh, most months it's going to be with uh, Rebecca Stevenson, the business editor at the spin-off. But this month, uh, joined by Duncan Grieve, uh, managing editor of the spin-off. Is that what we're calling you? Right? Yeah, that sounds appropriate. Yeah, yeah, same managing editor and Maria Slade from the communications team at Callahan Innovation. Thanks uh, for joining us. Hello. Hi, g'day. Hey, so this month, um, quite a few big, interesting business stories. Uh, three that we're going to cover. Um, one from the podcast, uh, a little bit of a chat about the e-bikes and the interview with uh, Matt Weavers and Big Street Bikers. Going to also talk a little bit about ethical clothing and how that's blown up as uh, quite a controversial little issue in the media. Media recently, and then get into R&D tax credits with uh, an announcement of proposed changes to the scheme by the new government, uh, and actually going to dig into a little bit as to how they work at the moment. But first up, um, let's jump into the ethical clothing carry-on. Did you two see that, that news this week? Yeah, the, the tier funds report that came out last week, and I mean, it, it's a kind of perennially scrutinized and, and sometimes controversial topic, but I think particularly for you know, Trillie Cooper, who's one of New Zealand fashion's most storied names, to receiving an F and which just was for not participating, but there was the, the implication that, you know, that it did not necessarily bear scrutiny that some of that supply chain. Um it is it's one of these things, right, where the the fashion basically I mean we're we've I think is it five years to the day since Rainer Plaza and that sort of crystallised what had been a long, rumbling um, or, or rising uh, court of discontent about particularly fast fashion, but fashion broadly and, and its impact on the world and, and on its workers. So I think this kind of reporting, well, report and uh, and what it seeks to do, you know, is, is beyond essential for the world, whether this is the right way to do it is probably something we can discuss in some ways. It's been going for a few years, hasn't it? And uh, in past years, the the story was that some of the big names, so it, it, it's um, done by uh, Tear Fund, which is um, uh, out of a Baptist um, uh, ch- charitable group, and they look at, um, across Australasia, some of the biggest names, and they've been following people like your Glassons and your Country Roads very closely and recently started to get some of the bigger names here. And so Karen Walker was the story a couple of years ago who had participated but didn't have the quite rigorous supply chain things that they needed. And the story with them was that they improved a lot over a couple of surveys. But this year, Trillis Cooper not taking part got them the F 
And then we saw some local fashion commentators uh, kind of really calling them to account on that. Well, I think the interesting thing is where it's going to go from here, the whole traceability issue. And you know, pl- prior to Rana Plaza, uh, which, in which over you know 1,100 people were killed, it was terrible. Um, prior to this, few of the global fashion companies um, actually made information about their supply chains publicly available. And they've started to do that since then. And it's quite interesting to see who rates and who doesn't. Like you've mentioned Trillise Cooper. Well, Zara actually gets an A-. And you'd think with that sort of mass fashion kind of production that, that they'd sort of do quite crap. But yeah. um, the, the, <laughs> the TFN gives them an A-. But they were one of the major companies affected by the actual Rana Plaza collapse. Well, so it, they, they did have a low base to work from. Well, it is yeah. great that they have addressed that. <laughs> it's it's right. Something that's always got really got under my collar is that, you know, we as a, as people, so so I'm obviously you know complicated in all of this as um uh, I my partner is Ingrid Starnes and we do the uh, Made in New Zealand fashion label together, um but you know as as a society we've got these like standards for how we expect uh, clothes to be made and treat workers to be treated and holidays to be done and the environmental discharge from dyeing fabrics and the water use for things like growing cotton and all of these things and the pesticides all of these things we have laws about here but we've just externalized it by importing stuff from overseas and not knowing the consequences of our actions and it's easier to find out how your eggs were made and the standard of the lives of your chickens than it is to have some kind of clear stamp that's available on clothes you buy i think that is set to change, and technology is going to enable that change. At the moment, the Tier Fund report it looks at things like whether they've got policies in place on forced and child labour. You know how much of the supply company the company has actually traced, um, whether it's doing any monitoring and that sort of thing. Uh, but that, that's all sort of manually done, if you like, um, and it's easy to falsify that information. Or if you want to prove that you are doing it right, you've got to spend a lot of money to have a company like EY or Deloitte come in and um, audit you. So it's expensive. To, to prove these claims, but the future is blockchain, uh, which is a technology that, that's pretty much just made for addressing this, this kind of issue. And so, so what's blockchain? Well, a lot of people would say it's the most disruptive technology of our time, actually. People are saying in terms of finance, um, it's, it's the biggest thing since the invention of double-entry bookkeeping. Um, and basically, in very simple terms, what it is, is it, it's a record book that everyone can see and no one can alter. Um, so it's tamper-proof. And um, new information is added to a blockchain um, only after consensus is reached with all the parties that are, that are involved and hold the copies. Uh, and sometimes that's called a distributed ledger, which is just a term for it. Uh, but basically it means that even if you hacked into it, you'd only get into one little bit of it. You wouldn't be able to see the whole thing. And so what it's doing is it's enabling um, trust through visibility. And it, it, like I say, it's one of the biggest things at the moment. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of Callahan Innovation clients are looking at it. Uh, it. And the thing that people have heard about the most is its application in finance, which is things like cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, etc. But it actually has applications on just about everything else you can think of, um, from sort of smart energy systems through to food safety. Uh, you know, everyone's into it, Frontier's into it, everyone's looking at it. Um, and there was a recent article in, in Fut- uh, Future Crunch, the, the tech magazine, um, which says that it's particularly useful for monitoring the movement of goods. And this is because every transaction goes onto the ledger and every node in the system keeps a copy of every transaction and it allows for instant access to information about a product's origin. So it's kind of mind-boggling. It's hard to get your head around exactly how it works. But 
Uh, basically, it's got huge potential for verifying the provenance of goods. And, and, and that's a massive issue, um, especially with our country of origin labelling, where you know very regularly these things pop up where people have been doing 80% of the job in a... Um, a, a, a different country with cheaper or lower um, law uh, kind of um, strenuous uh, application and then they get pulled into Italy and finished and then it says made in Italy and uh, that, that's happening all the time and so that is an application where blockchain would be able to check to see where things had actually been at every point uh, in the process and that's quite good because it's actually a rule that you have to mention blockchain in any kind of tech discussion in 2018 <laughs> so it's, it's good that we've managed that. to take that off within yeah. the first five minutes yeah i mean i, I think that uh the 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 period the, i mean the sort of fast fashion explosion which which kind of has made clothing far more accessible to to far too many with, with some really nice elements to it but with a lot of kind of bad things happening in, in the shadows effectively his you know, like it, it's actually a really, it's a very recent and um, comparatively short-lived phenomenon, and I think with you know, like you look at somewhere like China, which you know until relatively recently had a reputation of being a place where working conditions were really poor, where environmental standards were were appalling, and it's you know that the the one of the benefits of a one-party authoritarian state is they can move the whole the the needle themselves they can just put their put their arms around it and you know when it's funny i think in the west we tend to sort of you know conceive of that that country and and um and its manufacturing as this sort of wild west but when in fact it's probably more, much more controlled than here and you know as, as i understand it they have, you know they're very aware of the the perceptions that that were out there about chinese goods and about the the impact on their labor and there there has been a concerted effort to to clean it up to the point where it does feel like the environment and and the environment and sustainability and and uh you know trying to kind of move their industry into a more high-tech space is, is much more of a concern yeah. within china than it might be within the u.s oh. which is walking backwards at, at a rate of under scott pruitt so you know i, I think that with the application of blockchain, with the value of it, and with a rise in consumer consciousness in, in the West, and and just a huge market opportunity, I, I would be surprised if you didn't see, you know, China kind of taking the lead on this and actually able to genuinely show that uh, they, they're making oh, that, major improvements there. And that and that's happened. And the biggest force that's done that has been um, a rising middle class in China. I mean, now if you want uh, super cheap production. You're in Indonesia, and so it was the uh, it was Vietnam, and Vietnam again has become more um, uh, the the kind of wage pressure there has gone up, and now Indonesia is the place where people are producing things um, in ways that you know you you would never stand in this country. But even China at at its best, and the the problem is not Chinese production in any of these cases. Like China is the only place in the world you could produce the iPhone. It's the most um, you, you know, extremely um, high high tech uh, production um, uh, country where you can produce that kind of stuff, um, but it's still the the you know every time we pass a law in New Zealand to give another public holiday, you know we're up to about um, four weeks of annual leave and another two weeks of uh, statutory holidays 
find another country with six weeks of public holidays where people are making any of these clothes. Like all of these things that we've chosen as a society to value, whenever you offshore your production, you're basically just saying, well, you know, it's, it's good enough for us, but it's not good enough for them. But also we are saying that China now is different from China where it was 20 or 30 years ago. So, and that Vietnam, the wage pressure has made them kind of unaffordable to make so they've trickled yep. down to India. So obviously there is a net effect across these countries that is positive. Yes, they're not where we are, but mm-hmm. we're not asking them to be there the next day. So I think there's something in the, the kind of the offshoring and the out-of-sighting of, mm-hmm. of labour, but the overall effect of globalisation, it seems hard to deny that it is ultimately a positive one, even if it's not exactly where we want it to oh, be immediately. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm not saying that um, all, like, you know, we shouldn't still be having the entire industrial revolution in little parts of the UK. Uh, and it is important to share it around, but it has to be coupled with, and some people, you know, to call out people who do it really well, like Kowtow, who do their production in uh, India, and they got one of the best uh, ratings in the ethical fashion. They're a New Zealand company that, um, from the very beginning, wanted to have full traceability of things like their fabrics. If you make things in New Zealand, uh, as we do, you don't have full traceability of all of your fabrics unless you're making uh, large enough runs to purchase, you know, hundreds and hundreds of metres of fabric. So Mm. lots of the smaller producers here don't have that full traceability. They didn't want to stand for that, so they went out and forged their own relationships and um, and pioneered a whole lot of really interesting uh, fabric sustainability and traceability and production standards. And as a result, they've got one of the best ratings in the world. And so going overseas is not necessarily a bad thing if you do it with that conscious consumerism. But that's Absolutely. where the, the new technology can give you hope that, you know, uh, you would be able to plug into that kind of, um, you know, chain of traceability because mm. it will enable it. Because that's the thing about blockchain, people have got to opt in. But as you say, Duncan, with the rise of the, um, you know, conscious consumer, there's going to be more and more pressure uh, to be able to, uh, you know, have that that view right mm. through to the to the origins. And, and like, that, that is true, but you look at, um, you know, free range eggs 15 percent of the market maybe is free range eggs and so you're still looking at 85 percent of the world uh are probably a long way off um being at a position to be comfortable enough uh or aware enough to to uh yeah know the impact of their actions so one of my favorite bits of instagram wisdom is that idea that every dollar you spend is a vote for the kind of world you want to live in and i just don't know if um people are really uh being that careful with their clothing spending not yet, not yet. Though the the eggs thing, I mean, McDonald's and Burger King, who were the last place you'd expect to do it, have both gone free range eggs in the in the last couple of years. So maybe there's hope. Yep. There's, there's definitely hope, and and there's like hope. you say, it's 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 quite early on. It's quite early on. Actually, there's a, there's another use for blockchain and fashion, um, which is I don't know that it's happened yet, but it's another potential um, great thing that can be done. Is um, they use cryptocurrencies to create a marketplace with a social focus, so shoppers would be able to get cashback rewards in um, cryptocurrency for shopping with those communities, and so that would put a, a whole lot more control back into the hands of a, a Bangladeshi community or something like that. Uh, and they're getting the value more directly and uh, shoppers know that they are contributing directly to the economic prosperity of that place. So yeah, it's, the, the possibilities are endless. Yeah, it's, it's definitely getting better. <laughs> um, hey, and, and how about e-bikes? Uh, do you guys, do, you, do you ride? Do you two ride? I'm trying to stop saying guys. Do you know how insidious the word guys is? It's just <laughs> always used uh, as, a, as a group noun, but it's very weird just to be like, saying guys i'm not offended no no but it's but it's weird and i'm trying to stop and it's just really stuck in there um do you two ride i ride a normal bike yeah 
And uh, I see all those um, e-bikers whiz past me on the Western Cycleway and I think, well, my thighs are going to look a hell of a lot better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cycled in high school. I've, I've never ridden an e-bike. And one of the things that... Uh, I have this kind of weird relationship with them because we had like a walking school bus going along the cycle path alongside the Northwestern Motorway. And we had to stop because it basically has become full of e-bikes which are going sort of basically twice the speed of a regular bike and they're just going to kill a kid so we you know like it's this weird thing where like an environmental improvement for the city has resulted in a slight backward step because now we're driving our kids to school again because we don't want to have to take one of them to a funeral that is a cycleway though (laughs) it's it's, it's designated as a A shared um, shared space but it's it's not separated and the e-bike riders are because a lot of them are new on it, A, they're not as kind of conscientious as a cyclist and they can be quite aggressive. So it's a little uh, t- tortured space, which, you know, to, to the credit, AT are aware of. And I think ultimately they'll probably unshare the space because I don't think it's, you know, it's one thing sharing a space with a cyclist, which I also think is probably a difficult thing given the speed just a road bike can go. But when you introduce a lot of mm. new e-bike riders into it, I think that the... There are three classes now and they all need their own spaces effectively. Yeah, I think there's definitely going to have to be some protocols uh, put in place and some education because you see some scary things on that Western cycleway. I totally <laughs> understand what it must be like trying to walk a kid to school. Yeah, but you're you're a long-time proponent or relatively yeah. long-time proponent. Well, so right, I've been, been riding e-bikes for a few months. but That, that road, makes you a veteran. In yeah, right, road, road bikes a lot longer. But the reason that I... Um, that the reason the e-bike made the change for me is like to get from um, where, where I live to uh, work, which is like a nine-kilometer trip. It's about forty-five minutes on the link bus and then a ten-minute walk, which is absolutely bananas for like a nine-k trip. And so the um, the bike ride uh, in a hilly city just means you turn up sweaty and then you don't get to have breakfast with the kids. But the e-bike ride means you can turn up to work. In work clothes, no problem at all. It's half an hour every day and it's not a lot of exercise, but it's more active than sitting in a car or sitting on a bus. Um, probably marginally more <laughs> more than the than the walk at the end of it. Um, but yeah, and, and it does get you there. And it does seem to be such an elegant solution to the particularly Auckland issue of heaps of traffic, lots of hills. Well, you know, you did your podcast on Big Street Bikers the other week, which is a really interesting model. Um, it's been around for a couple of years, that sort of thing, and, and Big Street Bikers are not the only ones doing it in New Zealand. There's another service called Boltra, and that enables you to hire an e-bike for 30-day periods. It's more expensive than Big Street Bikers, but they do things like they'll deliver it to you and pick it up from you and, you know, et cetera. Uh, but this, basically the subscription as a service model, which they're doing, is, is just the thing. Everyone's doing it all around the world. Um, we've had Uber Bike start in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. It's a similar sort of model to Uber. You, you have an app and you locate a nearby bike and you're sent a pin to unlock the bike. And then I think they charge you something like $2 per 30 minutes. Uh, and it's a partnership with a company called uh, Jump, which has been doing what they call dockless bikes um, for a few years and they've got big expansion plans into the, the more affluent areas of America like Sacramento so, and so forth. Um, in San Francisco, it's interesting what you're saying about you know the, the sort of traffic now on the Western Cycleway because uh, in San Francisco there's just these e-bikes everywhere. There's multiple companies. They've all got a similar system with an app and find a nearby bike. 
Uh, but then there are these three, Bird, Lime Bike and Spin, who've all launched e-scooter services. And there's a major stouse going down about that at the moment. They've just flooded the city, similar sort of system to the e-bikes, except it's e-scooters. Mm. And um, the influx has just created a fury amongst residents who think they're a public nuisance. Uh, because the thing is, people ride them on the sidewalks right. over there. Mm. And a couple of weeks ago, the San Francisco uh, city attorney sent a cease and desist order to all three companies. And in typical American fashion, at the same time, there's there's other moves uh, statewide in California to legalise riding stand-up electric scooters on on sidewalks. So there's this, you know, you know lawyers City at the ready everywhere, water. yeah, <laughs> going on. But um, but yeah, this this is what happens, of course, when these uh, new technologies come to the fore. You, yeah. you, your city suddenly is crowded with them, and so what do you do? And, and they are all that um, the, the question of how do you solve the last mile? So yeah. people jump off their public transport, getting to or from. On their public transport and in places like uh, Japan where it's been um, a public transport first um, situation in places like Tokyo for a long time a lot of people own two bikes so they'll ride their bike to the station where they first go leave it there and then jump off and get on their second bike and ride to work and then repeat the process um, and that, that kind of prevalence of bikes and the sharing of footpaths you know that's a city of you know, 15 million plus um, who managed to share footpaths with bikes and people walking. You'd think that, you know, like we'd be able to be a little bit more um, willing to share our spaces here. But here, if a, if a cycle goes on the pavement, everyone's really angry. If you're on the road, all the cars are angry and you die, which is also a, a negative for <laughs> riding bikes. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it, what we're dealing with right now across a whole bunch of areas of society is a a sort of an interregnum kind of chaos in that um, we've gone from a very sort of stable and known era where cars were the main thing and a few fringy types used a bus. Shame. Um, Loser cruiser. Yeah, yeah, or the shame wagon, as as my friend calls it. But um, the, jokingly, I should add, but I think that there's been this kind of unlocking and some of it is down to just the global supply chain making an e-bike which would have been phenomenally expensive if we tried to make it here um, really really comparatively cheap and right now we're just sort of dealing with the chaos of it. I mean I think back to when Onzo launched here when you say launch they basically just dropped yeah, them dropped a whole lot of and bikes just everywhere said, you figure it out and that's been the you know, variance on that model in, in a lot of cities and there was this kind of reflexive this is a terrible thing that that's that's happened to us and they should have gone through these proper processes but had they done that it might never have happened and i think most people really like onzo one of my colleagues madeline chapman liked it so much that she i don't know if liked it's the right word but she got on we wanted to see how the furthest away she'd ever seen one this is diversion um was uh, papakura and she got on one and rode it to huntley Last week. Where was the starting point? Where did she start from? Mount Eden. Right, right. This is a, probably like a 15 kilo bike with one speed and solid rubber tyres. Yeah. And she hadn't ridden a bike in years. And she just got on it and kept riding south until she couldn't ride anymore. To be fair, Z, Z Energy and Huntley gave her a free pie. So uh, <laughs> you know, it was probably worth it. <laughs> the point being that there's this kind of transport sport revolution happening and... There is going to be chaos and issues to resolve along the way, like the scooters, like the e-bikes, dealing with the small children. But it's none of it's irresolvable. And I think where we're going to get to out of it is a much more fluid and multimodal uh, system that will 
be to the benefit of everyone rather than the few who own cars and get frustrated through traffic. It's definitely part of growing up as well, you know, and with so many people having lived overseas in places where you do have um, turn up and ride transport options, uh, it's really heartening that we're heading that way. And actually part of the reason that I I moved to the e-bike is that I used to catch the train to work and I'd ride my bike for the two Ks to the train station and it was a little folding one and then I'd jump on the train. And the train's now too crowded for me to... Uh, bring my bike on which is fantastic that you know trains have got busier uh, but also stink because it was really sweet when hardly anyone was using the train that was such a great service yeah that's right and look you'll be interested to know that the e-bike phenomenon has even made it to the farm there's a, a company down in the, the Hawks uh, the Bay of Plenty that uh, Callahan's done a little bit of work with uh, called Ubco and they're making utility electric vehicles which are basically e-bikes for the farm uh, these cool little bikes that, um, that they look like a motorbike but they're not really they're, they're a little e-bike bike and um and that's a little new zealand company that's um developing those so it's amazing what's going on and and one last thing to note before we move on from the e-bikes is probably the the subscription model it's not really a true subscription model the big street bikers one and that it's a rent to own so you um you pay your 30 bucks a week for 18 months or so and then you own the bike at the end or you can buy it for two five outright at the beginning and so the way that works is that there is um definitely a an interest cost uh, associated with the rent to own model uh, which is what you'd probably expect if you got something that's two thousand five hundred dollars on a rent to own program uh, but they've tried to peg it so it's cheaper than the hop card for the week for most people which is um yeah which is which is quite a cool um way to increase ownership so it's certainly not a free lunch though yeah i mean I, it's funny so some of the innovations that that come out of the the sort of the tech or innovation sector are really kind of rebrandings of, of pre-existing processes, and and that can get you know certain people, uh, potentially more cynical people, quite uh, infuriated. As you know, I did see some chat on Twitter about the big street bikers model, but you know the beauty of all this stuff is you don't have to participate, and if you don't like its name or you don't like its model, just just don't. But functionally, like it's a deal, it's a transaction, and if you like the end of it you're offered you take it and if you don't you don't and that doesn't seem to be particularly harmful to me Mm. and i would recommend if anyone was interested in um, e-bikes do try and rent one for a couple of weeks or a couple of months through some kind of way because the big fear of it is it becomes like you know the abflex and you've got like (laughs) a very expensive abflex in your garage uh but it was like 2500 plus and also i mean you, you should probably go and try one of the um i went and tried a couple of um of the more expensive ones, like the five grand ones, and they go 50Ks an hour. And it's just, it's just, you're so exposed and it's so dangerous to be. It seems wild that that's not a licensed proposition given that a scooter, like a motor scooter, not a um, push scooter, is, you know, that, that a 50cc scooter has got a maximum speed of around 50, 60, and you need a, I think it's just a learner's, yeah. but still. Yeah. I, I think and that's one of the things it's probably just sitting in some weird like regulatory back ho- black hole and that'll get taken care of and if we can just relax and pay attention but don't don't freak out I think we'll we'll be fine we'll all catch up soon and as a, as a last thought um, into those R&D uh, tax credits so with Labour's election uh, they had promised some changes to the tax credit and R&D regime um, there are some proposals out now for feedback but it might be handy seeing that we do have uh, an expert from Callaghan to look at how does the situation work at the moment with um, Callaghan, Callaghan grants and um, tax credits and then maybe into what's proposed for the changes? 
Right, so the situation, as we know, is New Zealand's kind of crap on research and development. Um, as a percentage of GDP, ours is really low by OECD standards. It's um, 1.28%, I can tell you, reliably. Uh, and that compares with an average of across the OECD of about 2.38. So, um, you know, definitely in the lower sort of section of the table. And like as a comparison, at the top of the table, you've got Israel and South Korea, and they both spend about 4.25%. So, you know, we're way below that. I mean, we're a different type of economy, but still, we need to lift our game. And so the government's goal is to lift that to 2% of GDP by 2027. So it's actually quite a bit. And so they need to find ways to encourage businesses to invest more in um, R&D. And, you know, the reasons are obvious. It's because, um, you know, science, innovation and research play a really critical role in developing a diverse and, and productive economy. So this is why they want to do it. Uh, at the moment, um, one of the ways you can access support is through um, the growth grants that Callaghan Innovation uh, administers. And this is a co-funding model where you uh, get 20% of your R&D spend up to $5 million a year. Uh, what the government's proposing is um, a 12.5% tax credit incentive. So you get a credit on uh, the amount that you've spent on R&D in a year. And they're proposing making that available from next April, so one year's time. And businesses would need to spend a minimum of 100000 a year on eligible R&D uh, to qualify. And that's a lower bar than we've had before. So um, the, the idea is that um, it, it's to make the, the support more widely available to a wider range of uh, businesses. And, um, you know, they're seeing this as an important addition to, to what we've done before. Um, and so MB, the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment, Inland Revenue and Callaghan Innovation um, are all working on uh, the details of how this might work. And uh, we're this, you know, the, the government's seeking input basically into, into how it might look. And so they've launched the six-week consultation process, just launched the other day. And look, from Callaghan Innovation's perspective, you know, anything that encourages people to uh, invest more in R&D, we're just totally on board with. So we really encourage businesses to get out there and have a say about this uh, because it's, it's a really quite good opportunity to help shape the outcome of how it might look. Um, just go to MB's website, all the um, discussion documents and so forth are there, have a look. Submissions are due uh, Friday the 1st of June, so kind of get onto it. Uh, yeah, so it's just a change in the way it's delivered, and as I say, the idea is to make it available to a wider range of businesses across a wider spread. Uh, yeah, so that's the deal, basically. And, and dropping from 300,000 to 100,000, and that's a huge difference. There, there, there must be a, a much smaller pool of companies that are looking to invest 300,000 in R&D in a calendar year compared to 100,000. That's right, it, it, it does. It makes it more widely open and um, also too, you know, it makes it more available to companies who are doing R&D in um, areas that you might not traditionally think of as R&D, like, you know, you, you think R&D science technology, but, you know, it also covers um, other kinds of business innovation and marketing innovation and that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, Theoretically, uh, those businesses may be eligible for these tax credits. So this is going to be all part of this process of um, having a look at, you know, how the system might be designed and how it might work. And what are the wrinkles in terms of um, 
you, you know, judging which companies are able to be eligible depending on kind of profit or turnover and, and the like there? That's all yet to be worked out. Uh, that's the thing because it's a tax credit. So it's simply at the end of the year, you go to the IRD and you say, we've spent this much on R&D. Can we please have our 12.5% tax credit? Uh, so that's that's different from applying for a, gra- for, for a grant. Uh, so it's a sort of the other end of the process, if you like. Um, and how they would uh, treat companies that are not yet in profit, that is yet to be worked out. So this is all part of this process. Uh, so, yeah, as I say, really urging people to get in there and have their say about how it might look. The, the big kind of change, I, I guess, is that when you know, before it was a sort of an, an opt-in kind of process that you had to sort of apply and be approved and then you were able to, to participate, whereas now you sort of almost self-designate and so long as you can convince the IRD. So I guess it does make it a, a lot more accessible and will, in theory, make the likes of the uh, your sort of... Was it Hawke's Bay, Bay of Plenty? Uh, Bay of Plenty. Bay of Plenty um, <laughs> sort of r- uh, rural-specific e-bike manufacturer able to participate or able to participate at an earlier stage, which, which does sort of instinctively feel like something that in a country like New Zealand, which has a bit of a you know, the, our sort of origin myth of the inventor tinkering in their backyard and emerging with a rocket kind of thing. Um, you know, it's, it's probably quite an appealing thought that it's not the preserve of people who are, you know, more engaged with the system or, or have achieved greater scale. Um, it's, it's about whether the IRD or the other agencies around it are able to kind of discern what is true R&D and who, who, in whose eye that, that is um, decided. That, that's probably one of the, the critical elements of it, I suppose. And, and is this the kind of place where all of the people that love to ask about where is the role of equity in all of these kind of grants and credit situations, should they be jumping in now and heading to MB's website and uh, adding that to the proposals? Absolutely, because as I say, the details of this haven't been uh, defined and decided on yet. It's a proposal, so it very much is open for consultation. So yeah, get on in there and, and have your two cents worth. That sounds great. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. Maria Slade of Callahan Innovation and Duncan Grieve of The Spinoff. And thank you very much for listening. Thank you, Alice Weatherdale, for producing. Uh, and we'll be back next week with a regular Business is Boring interview. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spinoff and Callahan Innovation. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.